Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? (laughs) Well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics US wherever you get your podcasts. Achtung, achtung, welcome to We Have Ways of Making You Talk with me, Al Murray, and James Holland. We have a a guest for you today, and it's to talk about an aspect of the war that I don't think we often get to. Um, We've touched on it a bit when we've spoken to people like Philippe Sands and to Alex Ritchie, but the aspects of the German state's conduct, the Reich's conduct in the Second World War, and the things it did in the East, I think. Um, So, James, who are we talking to today? Yeah, today we are talking to uh, Waitman Wayne Bjorn, and um, yeah, this is a, this is altogether a kind of sort of grimmer subject, isn't it? I mean, this is this is Wehrmacht atrocities in the Eastern Front, not SS. Yeah. So somehow, kind of, you know, we all assume it's kind of Einsatzgruppen and and sort of badass leather coated SS types doing this kind of work, but of course, yeah. it wasn't. Hilling, Hitler's willing executioners and all the rest of it, and. Uh, Waitman's done a particular study into um, a Belarusian village, which is makes for pretty grim, grim research, I'd guess. Yes, well, welcome, Waitman. Um, uh, Thanks for having me. It's... Uh, well, thank you for joining us. And you're you're in, you're in Newcastle, is that right? I am. Yes, I'm at oh, Northumber University, so I'm a I'm an expat. I'm not going to say well, how have you ended up there, but um, what? what how what, have you ended up there? <laughs> well, how have you? Have you ended up there? Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, it's um, you know, the I, I've taken certainly a very non-traditional approach, probably to academia. But the way one finds a suitable position, you know, you kind of have to go where the jobs are. And there was a fantastic opportunity at Northumbria um, for someone who works in the Holocaust, uh, like myself. So um, very excited to be in Newcastle. I love it up here in the north. So it's a, it's a good place to be. And and we ran into each other on Twitter the day I was bawling people out for calling a self-propelled gun a tank. And, uh, <laughs> just for the sport of it. I mean, not because I care in either direction. You pointed out that you'd been a tank. You were a tanker and you showed me the inside of your, of your Abrams and taught me through the systems and everything. So you come at this story of this history of an army doing terrible things, not a political entity like the SS, an army doing these terrible things from a soldier's perspective. Is that what brought you to the subject or is it just an aspect of the genocide in Eastern Europe that maybe doesn't 
that hasn't had the attention that, you know, the, the guys in the black with the skulls um, have necessarily attracted? Yeah, I mean, I first have to say that um, I wasn't a tanker. I was a cavalryman because oh, ca- yeah, okay. cavalrymen are far superior to everybody else. Um, <laughs> But uh, so when I when I started, this was uh, this first book grew out of my dissertation project. Um, and when I got to graduate school, my advisor, as you know, the best advisor should sort of tried to help me situate myself within what had been published, what had been worked on, but also keeping in mind what I'm interested in. Um, and one of my main interests in the Holocaust um, and in genocide is sort of how do people do this? You know, how do how do individuals and organizations come to participating in these kinds of things? Yeah. And uh, I'd initially come at that from looking at Nazi doctors and Nazi medicine and that kind of thing, um, which is pretty well plowed ground um, historiographically in historical communities. And my advisor said, you know, hey, no one's really worked on sort of the a social history of uh, the Wehrmacht's participation, you know, and um, would you be interested in doing that? Because I think you might have a, a special perspective on that. And this gets to Al's point. It's been really beneficial when I worked on that, you know, having the background that I've had, because there were just certain, it's like I spoke the language. Um, I feel like that armies in, in a certain sense haven't changed very much since the Romans, you know, that there are certain, you know, officers, you know, think that NCOs get too much in their business. NCOs think officers don't know anything. You know, there's always the the hard charging guy who wants to get his career on track and doesn't care who he steps on to do it. I mean, these are things that are sort of universal, right? I mean, I remember, just to, to give one mention of the, uh, as I was doing research for this, I ran across um, a memorandum from the SS Cavalry um, Brigade in, in Belarus. And, it, you know, it was bobbity, bobbity, bobbity. And then uh, there was a line that said, SS troopers are forbidden from fishing with hand grenades. And I just thought, you know, that could have been written in Afghanistan today. You know, I mean, it's just, you know, sometimes people just do dumb things. I mean, and that's that's obviously... Uh, sort of superficial, but um, I feel like a lot of the, a lot of the interpersonal elements were clearer to me because I could see exactly what was going on. You know, that the, these are the dynamics that are taking place. So it was, I think it was helpful. When you were in the in the in the U.S. Army in the cavalry, I mean, you you were in Afghanistan, were you? I mean, did you serve in Iraq and and did you? It was, I was in Iraq. Yeah, I guess there was no tanks in. Were the tanks in Afghanistan? I'm trying to think. Uh, Maybe not Abrams. Not very happy ones, I'm sure. No, 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 absolutely. But anyway, so, so, so you've, had, you've had a taste of kind of frontline combat yourself. That's the point I'm getting at. Yeah, I mean, I, I certainly wouldn't, yeah, I wouldn't compare it to, to World War II by any stretch. A lot of it is just, you know, recognizing sort of these, these military archetypes of personality, you know, manifesting themselves in a dysfunctional environment that then leads to sort of genocide and atrocities and that kind of stuff. So the class interactions within an army, the traditional ways of doing things, all those, all those sort of characteristics. I think w- when you say that they've not changed since the Romans, I mean, it's it really hard to disagree with that contention. From the sort of scant knowledge I have, the recognisable patterns, the reason companies are the size they are, the reason brigades are the size they are, and they can't get any bigger, they can't really get any smaller and work properly, can they? Because this is how people can interact. But I suppose the difference in the Second World War, may, I imagine, and this is the thing, it's the thing we're going to get to, is that there's a political dimension added in, isn't there? in Nazi Germany that that has maybe not been present in other armies that haven't gone to these terrible lengths? Well, I think I mean, it's a good point. And I think where, where sort of the, the interaction takes place is between ideology and situation. Um, you know, you sort of have um, a, a perfect storm of a, of a dysfunctional organizational culture that, you know, is imbibing large amounts of certain kinds of propaganda. Um, and... But then also has, you know, these these social psychological pressures that, um, you know, in other times and other wars can be totally helpful. Uh, in this case, sort of only aggravate the situation, um, and you get you get sort of um, these these archetypal roles stepping in and doing things that, you know, are are criminal and, and, and terrible. But the heart of your work is this this village of Krucha. I hope I pronounced that correctly in, in Belarusia. It's uh, well, it's it's actually so. There, the, the that book um, is five different five different uh, cities and towns, all within Belarus, um, all within uh, G- uh, the year basically nineteen forty one or so. So it, it takes it takes uh, five different places together and right. looks at at unit, various units um, inter- interactions with the communities there. But Kruch is one of them, yeah. And 
These are all places where the Wehrmacht have been responsible for just appalling atrocities of civilians where they've been pulled out of their homes, taken to the woods, taken to wherever, taken to pits. You, you know, I mean, just tell us how you got to these places in the first place and and what exactly happened. Sure. So, I mean, um, you know, one of the challenges, I think, of, of trying to get at something like, you know, how does an organization participate in atrocities and this kind of thing is um, the issue of, of representativeness, right? You know, how do I, what do we look at and then say to blow out to a larger level and say this is indicative of the organization as a whole, right? Because that's that's always difficult. And I started out trying to think about, well, can, maybe I could use soldier letters, but but those are, are not useful because uh, number one, you rarely have a series from the same person in the same unit over time. You know, most soldier letters, including mine, were boring. You know, it's hot, it's cold, I'm hungry. Um, they're not sort of deep philosophical treatises on, you know, law of war and this kind of thing. And so I started looking at trial documentation um, in Germany, and I came across um, a series of investigations, some leading to trial, um, that all happened to, you know, it's one of those sort of fortunate finds for an historian where they happen to be in the same geographic region uh, over the same relatively same time frame, which then allowed me to sort of say, okay, you know, this is a fairly widespread phenomenon, and this can leave me with, I guess, to some level of representativeness. You know, these are still not, I mean, you can always say, well, it's not the, you know, it's not the Grossdeutschland, it's not the, you know, the, the Fallschirmjägers, and so it's it's not necessarily representative. But I think, um, on the whole, it's it's fairly representative, at very least, I would argue, of the, um, the Wehrmacht's propensity or capability of being an, an atrocity-committing organization, you know, given the opportunity. So it's not a motive question, it's more an opportunity question. And so, you know, each one of these cases that I talk about in the book, um, and this is not a book plug, it's just, you know, to give you the background that, um, that Jim was asking for, uh, you know, there's a, a unit that takes part in a massacre in a village of uh, Kripke, where it kills around a thousand people, but it's a very sort of ad It's at the very beginning, it's in September of 1941, and they're sort of figuring out, you know, how do we do this? It's very sort of amateurish. Um, and then we move on to Kripka, which, or Krucha, sorry, which is what uh, Jim was mentioning. And that's the really interesting one because you have essentially, well, there's, a, there's two parts to this that are really important. Um, just prior to the massacre that takes place there, there's a conference uh, in Mogilev in Belarus, which is basically a lessons learned for fighting partisans conference. But of course, at this type, point in time, there are no partisans because Stalin has killed anyone that knows how to be a partisan because they want them because he doesn't want them to be a partisan. Um, and there's a funny story. Uh, and this I, is the autumn like, of 1941, and and yeah, and Barbarossa's only sort of, you know, where, where, where are we at? Four months old, you know. So absolutely, and 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 it speaks to a larger sort of paranoia within the German military about about partisans. And there's a funny story I came across, which is in Minsk. Um, because the, everyone put out the, the Nazis got to Minsk in like two weeks, I think, and which is an amazing amount of time. Yeah, it's middle of it's, um, yes, it's it's kind of sort of just, second week of July, isn't it? It's, it's like very very quickly, and the, all the Soviets just basically run away. But there's a, a resistance group that forms in Minsk in the very beginning. But they call themselves essentially the Minsk Resistance Group Number Two, because they they assume there has to be a number one, and they don't want to be stepping on the toes of the official <laughs> Red Army, official <laughs> Soviet resistance group. Uh, so they, they just assume that That's they'll call amazing. themselves number two. Um, but in any case, yeah, there's there's no resistance. There's no partisans to speak of. Um, so then that and, – and the interesting thing is that the agenda for this meeting exists and the executive summary exists that, that went out to every unit um, across the Eastern Front. And, and, and it was also copied by the police battalions and the SS. And what's interesting is that this conference was really about, in many ways, conflating Jews and partisans. Yeah, and then I, I, and, just what I was going to ask: Does partisan not mean Jew in this in this situation? And and after all, Jews, of course, are the enemy of the Third Reich, so they're the enemy. So anyone who's a Jew is a partisan automatically because they're they're the enemy, you know. And and and, it, and, and then if if you and it, also if you do murder Jews, you can say they were partisans. Exactly, so you're, and, you're, you're, you're covered. And, and this is one of those things that's really, you know, it's, it's one of those moments where there was sort of, a, we rarely find these in history, where you sort of find the smoking gun um, that sort of ties various events to, to sort of policies. But, you know, you have this, and we can talk more about the sort of the Jew-Bolshevik partisan calculus, which is sort of what gets mixed into all this. Um, 
But they bring together these guys who are mostly Wehrmacht, um, so it's not an SS-led sort of scenario in this conference. Um, and they're supposedly have had experience in fighting partisans, but when you look at the units they've in, they've been in, they've already been involved in mostly killing of Jews. Um, and they have these little sort of sand table exercises and discussions and briefings, one of which is by Arthur Nebo, who is the, um, the commander of the Einsatzgruppe B, which is murdering Jews en masse at this point in and time. And he used and his, to be the police chief in Berlin, didn't he? He was the head um, of the Kripo. I think so. Yeah, he was. Yeah. He was. He was the head of the Kripo. In, in, so the, the Kripo Polizei is the kind of, you know, that's your detective superintendent Morse. You know, yeah. that, that's what he was. But uh, Or the head of the Met or something, head of Scotland Yard. That, that is what he is in Berlin before the war. And then and, he, and he goes over to the dark side. And he's a terrible guy. Um, and, you know, we have the title. We don't have the minutes, but we have the title of his presentation, which was something like uh, the solution to the partisan question with particular concern to the Jewish question or something like this. Right. You know, it, it, so, I mean, we can probably imagine what he's talking about here. And yeah. then um, on the third day of this conference, all the officers, and again, they're mostly company grade, regimental grade, go out and they watch this sort of sample operation, which is run by um, the SS, in which they go into a village, they do the whole like circle cordon of a village, search it. They don't find any partisans, uh, but they do find, uh, I think, around 20 or so Jews and they murder them. And that's sort of the lesson learned. And then these guys go back to their units. And the way that ties in then to um, the story I was telling earlier is one of the um, attendees was from this 691st Infantry Regiment, which is where the battalion came from that was vicinity Krucha. And he comes back and he tells the battalion commander, essentially, the message from this conference is that where there's a Jew, there's a partisan. Where there's a partisan, there's a Jew. And the, the, and the battalion commander then orders all of his three companies to murder all the Jews in their, in their area of operations. And what makes this even more fascinating is they all have, they have three different responses. Um, one of the guys is sort of a, a dyed-in-the-wool Nazi, and he says, sure, let's do this, and, and no problems. The second guy is kind of a... He's a wishy-washy officer. He's kind of pushed around by his first sergeant. Um, but he, he kind of knows this is bad, but he doesn't really want to push rock the boat. And so he asks for the order in writing, and he gets it. And his first sergeant sort of takes charge and says, sir, I'll do this. And, and they end up murdering all the Jews in their area. But the third company commander says, nope, not going to do it. And the battalion commander says, you know, when are you going to learn to be hard? And he says, in this case, never. Um, and he doesn't do it. And so you sort of have these and, three... And nothing happens to him, right? Nothing happens. He gets made fun of. Um, he gets called sort of the, the names you can imagine that you would... Softy. You know, Mr. The, Softy and all that. And, yeah. yeah. But, uh, you know... He, as a starter, Jesus. But he doesn't but, do but, it. But, but he's not demoted. He's not um, no. put in prison or sent back. No. It's like, what are they going to do? Send him to the Eastern Front? You know, he's already there. Um, <laughs> but uh, and, and what's interesting is, of course, is that this plays into the fact that we don't have... No historian and no German defense attorney, you know, two people who are highly motivated but for different reasons, have ever found an example of someone being shot for refusing personally to execute Jews. It just – it doesn't – it has never been proven. Yes, and it's it the happens. same with the, the Reichsbahn driver. You know, if you don't want to take them to Auschwitz, you don't have to. Right, exactly. You know, if you don't so, want to be yeah. a, guard, a guard at Birkenau, you don't have to. There, there are potentially things that could happen to you that are bad, but they're not – and that sort of being executed. The ironic thing is that the trial is of the second guy. So you really get a sense after the war of the internal dynamics of this unit because it all comes out in this trial, which is also very rare, by the way, of a Wehrmacht guy um, being put on trial at all um, by the Germans after 1949. Um, and this, the, the, the company commander who refused writes a letter to the court, uh, to the judge, where he basically, you know, dimes out this everybody else and says, you know, I refuse to do this and... You know, I knew this was wrong and I wasn't going to do it and all this other stuff. Um, so, the, you know, and then, you know, the the study sort of moves on to look at how this becomes normalized and routine in a place called Slunim and, and Suchin later on. But um, it's something I think can be extrapolated out to a much larger scale. Um, and again, I think that with the Wehrmacht, it's, it's more a question of opportunity than it is of motive. Uh, you know, it's an organization that is set up for this. Um, you know, and if, even if you look at the way they treat Soviet prisoners of war, which is kind of its own genocide in and of itself, um, you know, and, and one of the units that the first unit um, that I talk about in the book had the, its first job 
in, in uh, the Soviet Union was guarding uh, the prisoner of war camp at Drozdy outside of Minsk, which was this 100,000 people basically in an open field, you know. And so they've had – they cut their teeth on that, you know, and then, and then they end up, you know, sort of escalating as time goes on. Um, but, but, but Waitman, I mean, this obviously is coming down from the very top. But it, but it is kind of filtering down, and you know you've got the famous or infamous, I should say, um, speech by Hitler, which I think is, if I remember right, is in March 1941, where he confronts the um, the OKW, the senior commanders, and says, you know, I want you to know that this is going to be this is an ideological war, this is a war of annihilation, and you know that this is a whole different ballpark, and basically I want you to go and slaughter everybody. I mean, words to that effect. So so that's coming down. Then you've got, you know, Jörg Thomas, um, head of the economic department at the OKW, you know, overseeing the setup of the hunger plan, where conservatively they're expecting between 20 and 30 million Soviets to die. Uh, and this is all being discussed coolly and calmly, and it's kind of, a, and it's sort of presented as a kind of sort of, a terrible burden on our shoulders, but this is dog eat dog, and either the great German race is going to survive, and that means this generation is going to have to take on the mantle of slaughtering all these these people, or it's going to be the end of us. So this is a choice we've got to make, and it's just a tough, tough thing, and and we've just got to man up and deal with it. But 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 once you've kind of you're, you're sort of getting into that mindset at that very highest level, inevitably that's going to filter down, and your younger troops your 20-year-olds, your 25-year-olds, even your 35-year-olds who've kind of sort of can still remember Versailles, can still remember the kind of, you know, the wheelbarrows of money, are angry, are pissed off, you know, all this kind of stuff, are resentful, have been worked up into a lather by by Nazi rhetoric and, and um, Hitler's talks and Nuremberg rallies and a, and a kind of non-stop kind of... Uh, um, brainwashing over over um, Nazi-controlled media, you can understand to a certain extent why, at the moment when it, you know, the moment where it where where push comes to shove, these guys are already primed to do this stuff. However, shocking and appalling it is, and you you hope that some people will cut through that, which clearly is happening, and saying no, I don't want to. Well, that do makes it. him all that third company commander all the more interesting, uh, doesn't uh, it? How does, he, how does he have that frame of mind? How is he resisting? Given that the, one of the other things in the mix is we're told what professional soldiers Germany produces. You know, it has a, it has a long and supposedly honourable tradition of producing great officers. Uh, the, you know, the Prussian military tradition, blah, blah, blah. So where, how come this guy, arrive, you know, people like this arrive at being able, first of all, holding that opinion, given the bombardment Jim's just described of, or the political sort of pot, pot that's boiling, and also that the army is a, nevertheless, the Wehrmacht's nevertheless able to say, well, don't worry about it. You don't have to do it. That It's got the flexibility in it. It's, it's remarkable. Yeah, I mean, I, 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 I want to touch that. And I want to hit, go back really quickly to something that Jim mentioned, what I think is really astute, which is this idea of the, the nature of war in the East versus the nature of war in the West. And a lot, yeah. a lot of historians and I think many people in popular culture sort of think, oh, you know, this war in the East was so brutal and, and so un, un, incredibly savage, you know, um, and it was, but the, the mistake that they make, in my view, is that they view that as sort of the aberration. Whereas for me, the Western Front is the aberration. You know, the Germans behave themselves relatively well on the, on the Western Front um, because they're not driven by these sorts of racial categorizations that they are in the East. I mean, the East, the war in the East is exactly the kind of war the Nazis want to fight. Uh, you know, it's a war of annihilation. It's a class of cultures, a class of civilizations. It's a zero-sum game. You know, it's a winner-take-all um, there's not going to be any peace treaty. There's not going to be any sort of uh, accommodation here. It's it's a war of annihilation, and that's that that fits in with with everything else about the Nazis. Um, and one of the things to, to to hit on something that Jim also mentioned, I think, is important. You know how do how do soldiers how how motivated are they? You know by the propaganda, right? Because one of the one of the things people often say is, oh, the, you know, they're they're indoctrinated, and to a certain extent they are. But it's important, I think. Um, to, to parse out what's indoctrinating them. One of the things that makes this sort of two-partisan thing so, I think, palatable um, or powerful for German soldiers is the connection with communism. Uh, you know, because there are a lot of soldiers who may not buy into the whole Jews as a parasitic race that are going to destroy our racial bloodlines, et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, many of them have 
very real, if anecdotal, experiences with communism. I mean, communism is a thing that exists, right? Bolshevism is a thing that exists, and it, for some people, you know, in Eastern Europe and even in Germany, it is empirically bad, and there's evidence that it's bad. And so I think what's interesting is to look at how these different ideologies are weighted. And so then, you know, for me, one of the things that the, that the, the German army does um, very effectively in a pernicious way, right, is, is they marry the Jewish piece, the anti-Semitic piece, to the anti-Bolshevik piece. Um, so that, you know, it actually, ironically, it sort of has a reverse effect of it's, it's actually the, the Bolshevik stuff that brings the Jewish stuff along rather than the other way around for a lot of these guys because they've, they've grown up in the interwar period when this has been a been a, an issue. And, it, and then we can also talk perhaps about sort of, you know, how this fits into sort of the larger Nazi colonial and, and imperial designs for the East. But I do want to hit the question about the, um, the company commander because he's interesting. This guy's name is, his name is Sabil. Um, and I actually got a hold of uh, his, uh, one of his relatives, like I think this is his granddaughter, niece, grandniece, something like this, um, to get a little more about him as a person. And he was a school teacher, uh, a reservist school teacher. Um, ironically, the, the, the second company commander was a school teacher too, but uh, Sibyl was a school teacher. Um, he wrote after the war to the judge, uh, you know, that he said, basically, this is not something that the German army does or is befitting of, of the German army, which, which can be taken one of two ways. It, it can be something like, because the SS should do this dirty stuff and not the German army, or it can be taken because I, I have an honorable, you know, disagreement with this. And, and I wanted to know the difference. I wanted to know which was going on. And I, I think I, I think I came to the conclusion that he actually had moral, a moral problem with it because I, I discovered via the family history that, um, he had kept his kids out of the Hitler youth, uh, because they had to go to church until such a time as uh, he was going to lose his job at the school he taught in unless, unless they went, you know? And, and so my sense is that he actually, it wasn't just a case of, we're not going to dirty our hands with this. It's more a case of, and I also don't, don't think this is something that's, that's uh, appropriate from a moral perspective. And I think it goes to what sort of Al was mentioning earlier. Um, you know, it's important that people like this exist because they show that at the time people were able to make these kinds of distinctions you know, and if we if we apply sort of the um, you know lockstep Nazi discipline that they'll do whatever they're ordered to do argument, well, it works both ways, right? So if they're ordered not to do it, you know, then it has the effect of everyone in his AO is is still alive because he, you know, theoretically they obeyed him. You know. Okay, James and I are going to take a break now. We're talking to Whiteman Bourne about the Eastern Front. Welcome back to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. James and I are talking to Waitman Bourne. Bolshevism is presented, the, the westward threat of, of communism and Bolshevism is presented in precisely the same terms, really, as the westward spread of Nazism is in Britain or the United States. So it is seen as generally something that needs to be stopped, something that is bad, something that is threatening your current existence and culture, and therefore is, a, is morally something that you should do to stop it. So that, that's the first point. The second point is, is the Nazis, um, a lot of young people get off from being part of this club, this gang, this kind of this, this the Nazis, the SS, whatever it is, being being part of it. It's the same. It's the same as all those kind of sort of right wing groups, and and that's why people are still being called sort of neo Nazis to this day, because it's this idea of sort of you know rooted in in anger, disenfranchisement, uh, um, resentment um, that other people are getting stuff that you're not. Uh, um, gang gang culture, kind of being part of a team, part of a club. Um, it, it's all part of that. And presumably those are the guys who, who obviously do go into the SS a lot, but also are still there in the ranks as well, who have who have grown up kind of being told that kind of Jews are bad, that communists are bad, that, that these are threats to your life. And you're kind of sort of young and angry and violent. And so therefore kind of squeezing the trigger isn't that big a leap in a way that it is to someone who is able to kind of stand back from that, who doesn't have that that sort of same motivations of kind of anger, of kind of mob violence and, and all the rest of it. 
Well, I mean, and that's a good point. You know, and, and it, it, I think it also speaks. I mean, to how it. much is it classist as well? I mean, how much is 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 violence related to kind of sort of working class disenfranchisement and, and, and resentment and anger? Um, and, and you know, I, I'd be interested to know the background of this officer as well. For him, I don't. There wasn't a lot sort of left in the records. Uh, you know, he's he's a middling middle class. You know, he's a school teacher in a high school. Um, you know, so you can sort of imagine where where that puts him. Uh, you know, sort of in the in the class society, and, and and you know, one of the things that's you know challenging and is a I think a fair criticism, perhaps, you know, is that the people that I'm looking at are they're basically second line divisions. You know, that this isn't, as I said, this isn't like Großdeutschland or like you know, you know, these are so these guys are older. You know, average age is in the 30s. You know, they're so they're not they're not the they haven't come up for the most part in the Hitler Youth, and they're not Grade A troops. You know, and I think all of these things. It, it sort of shifts us into sort of a situational perspective. You know, you have these guys who are isolated out in Russia, which to them is kind of like Vietnam. I mean, you know, they talk about the forests in Russia, which are n- totally not these German forests. So they're the Urwald, these these sort of primeval grim fairy tales, you know, forests. Or they're in these massive open areas that apparently are very traumatic for Germans. Um, and... And so that that creates a sort of forced tightness um, and forced sort of social cohesion, which I think has unfortunately even more impact sometimes than the ideology itself. You know, you have if you look at the guys and there are guys um, in these units that I came across who who refuse individually to participate, you know, or who've shot once and said, I'm done. I'm not doing that anymore. Um, But if you look at how they all how they all even after the war, which makes us even more interesting, you know, they all said, oh, I'm too weak. Or, you know, I have a family back home, you know, I can't, I can't, I just, I, I can't shoot kids, you know. And what's interesting about that is it allows them to re-enter that, that group, you know, because they can say, oh, you know, Waitman is just, he's just a really soft guy, you know, but he's a nice guy. We know him, you know, um, versus if I say you guys are all murderers and this is immoral and awful, you know, then who do you go hang out with once you, once you go back? I mean, there's no sort of going back from that. So it's all sort of portrayed as weakness, you know, and, and for some people it might have been just that they weren't capable, but for other people, I'm sure that it was a, a way of them to, to ex- exert a moral opposition, but not in a way that gets them in trouble. But, but also it's, it's, it's kind of being part of the mob, isn't it? I mean, because, because, you know, I mean, you know, you know, the soccer hooligans of the 1970s, very few of them would have been a soccer hooligan on their own. You know, they're a soccer hooligan because they're with 12 lads who are all a bit, pissed up and you know they get the kind of dutch courage and they get the courage from being in a gang i mean yeah for sure i mean and, and once one and, person does it and you're all there together you're kind of you know it's it, it gives you a kind of confidence that this is sort of okay in a way that that if you were on your own you wouldn't yeah there's a scholar out there um uh, named thomas kuna who is, is sort of remarked about this sort of comradeship built around uh, about around criminality you know because my argument is these guys knew what they were doing was wrong. It may have been justified, but in the end, you know, as Gerhard Weinberg says, you know, like if, if, if you're shooting a child, you just can't imagine that there's actually any justification for this. You know, it just, it, you just can't at some point. If you're shooting an 18-year-old kid, okay, you can, you can do the mental gymnastics of, well, eventually he would be an enemy. But, you know, if it's a child or like an old woman or something, you know, you just have to know unless you're a sociopath. And we know that most of these guys are not, are not sociopaths. But what's interesting about to, – to highlight some of the things you've mentioned earlier – What's interesting about the group dynamic is you have essentially a group of the usual suspects that emerges in all of these units who can be counted on to be the ones to be the actual shooters. And and that's actually kind of an awful development because what it does is it allows everyone else who has doubts – yeah, they don't have to confront it uh, you know, because you sort of have a bell curve of the dedicated killers and the people who are completely opposed. And in the middle, these people that can kind of go either way depending on you know, what's going on. In, a, in earlier research, there, this company commander was a real jerk, and he basically told his company clerk that he wanted him to go out and shoot Jews next time. And the guy was like, literally, this is what he said. He said, sir, you know me. We've been together for like two years. You know I'm not going to do this. And the, the only response to the company commander was basically, well, crap. You know, because he – what's he going to do? He's, he's not going to make – he can't make him go do it, you know, because, you know, if you play that out all the way, which gets to why these soldiers knew they could refuse if they wanted to – Imagine being the company commander, court-martialing a soldier, and you're standing in front of the judge saying, 
you know, private so-and-so refused to shoot a naked pregnant woman. And therefore, you know, he, he needs to go to prison. Nobody's going to sign off on that. I mean, right. because there's a sort of there's a sort of knowledge even within the organization that it's a bad thing. Well, and the embarrassment enough that you've lost control of your men too, haven't you? You haven't got you haven't been able to get them to do what you, what you ordered them to do. There's there's that too, isn't there? That the, yeah, an, an officer admitting to the fact he can't get his guys to do what he wants them to do. You're never going to, and especially around an issue like that, you're never going to. Do, do the more they do it, do they become more brutalized? Is there that too built, yes. built in? into this that, that the more you get used to this murder the bell curve maybe shifts shifts a, a, you know that the people in the middle just end up doing it i mean i think it's really fascinating that you say they've guarded this prisoner of war camp where basically russians were left in the open to die so the idea that death is the next destination for all your enemies regardless of the circumstances is a thing they're inured with or used to by the time they actually start rounding people up to shoot them so as they get further into it they get more brutalized and more, more sort of sort of inured to it, aren't they? They're yeah, inured. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I, that's a that's an excellent point. I mean, that's exactly right. At least my findings. You know, you have these guys at the beginning, um, and they're you know literally that unit that ends up guarding the prisoner camp in Minsk had been stationed in the Loire Valley before before it ends up in Minsk. So you know, this was quite a culture shock for them, right? Um, to come from France to you know. Minsk, where they where they witnessed, by the way, they witnessed the SS and the Antifa group in pulling Jews and commissars out of the prisoner war camps and shooting them. You know, so they're they're sort of adjacent to this genocidal activity, above and beyond the general horror of these guys like starving to death in in, in the in the open. And but but they're very, as I said, sort of amateurish in the beginning. You know that they're they don't know how to do this. The you know they they run out of bullets and they have. I mean, it's just a it's a mess in every sense. And by the end. Um, you have these soldiers, you know, in again, this, these are different units, but I think it tracks, um, the, you know, they go into the ghetto because at this point now there's a ghetto in one of these villages and they, they play what they call Jew games on Saturdays. So they choose the Sabbath, they go into the, and, and they mess with people and they kill people, you know, and, they, and there's, there's rape and there's, um, you know, robbery and all these things that, you know, become sort of standard. You know, they, they, they learn the system just like any soldier does. You sort of learn what you can do and get away with. And it works both ways. You know, the, the perpetrators learn what's acceptable, you know, who lets them do what. Um, but the ones who want to get away with it, you know, learn how to make themselves scarce when things are going on that they don't want to be involved in. But it's, it's rarely, as, as Jim pointed out, you know, it's rarely sort of the stand up, I refuse to do that and you shouldn't either sort of thing. But also, isn't there? I mean, for some people, isn't isn't there a sort of getting a kick from 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 the power that you have over someone else, the ability to take their life? I mean, that's the ultimate power, isn't it, to be able to take away someone's life? I mean, I'm reminded of that amazing line in the uh, the Clinton Eastwood movie Unforgiven, where he goes, "It's quite a thing killing a man. You take away all he's got, all he's ever gonna have," and it's that same principle, isn't it? I mean, because obviously, in this case, it's women and children as well, and 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 and. But, but it is, I have that power. I, I have that and I've got a taste for it. And, and it makes me feel, it makes me feel vital and powerful and, and in control. I'm pretty sure that you would find that most of those guys have had some kind of trauma from earlier on in their life. You know, the guys who kind of the, the ready killers. So, somehow they've been beaten, they've been abused, they've been, they've been kicked down the street as a, as a kid or I don't know, it could be anything. And they could be from all walks of life, but it's like a revenge on humankind, isn't it? I mean, I think I think there's something to that, and also I think there's something to the fact that you know, again, you, a lot of this is about, and it's some of the things that I'm recognizing, you know, you know, in the book from my own experience about every organization has a climate and a culture that is set by the leadership, right? So that you know, you you know what right looks like, right? So if you think about like the the Fort Hood problems that are just happening now with the leadership there, you know, that there's a command climate problem. Um, and the message that these guys are getting when they evade the Soviet Union is that the lives of people that live here are less than in value than other people's. Um, you know, and you, and you talk about, you know, what does the average soldier know? Because we all know that, like, generals like to do memorandums that nobody ever reads. Um, but we do know that, that these, these criminal orders that we talk about are disseminated down to the troops, like read out in formation. You know, and one of them is, literally, it's, it's called a jurisdiction order, and it basically says, look, for things that you would be prosecuted for in the West, you will not be prosecuted for, there will not be a court-martial in the East. 
you know, and so it, it's basically like a like a get out of jail free card, you know, what happens in Vegas kind of attitude towards everything in Eastern Europe. Um, and so if you layer that onto, you know, the power that one has, and also I think the the inferiority complex that some of these guys have too, of, you know, they, they know that they're second line sometimes, they know that they're in a dangerous situation. Um, for some of them, some of them are yearning to do actual combat, which is why a lot of these operations very much, they masquerade as an actual army operation. You know, it's like, we're going to surround the village and then we're going to come in and we're going to search. We're going to get the partisans, except that there's actually no partisans, right? They're actually just murdering people. But in their mind, they can say, oh, it's an operation. It's a military operation. You know, we're, we're doing something military. And that turns it into a front, doesn't it? So then you're on a front and it's, you know, and after all, if it is a race war, that's a front in the race war, isn't it? it rather than the the front. So yeah. speak, in the same way that the camps are a front, if you get into that mindset. Yeah, I mean, and this is a really important point too, Al. I mean, like the, the fact that, you know, a lot of people like to view the Holocaust and World War II and the Nazi genocidal project, which is sort of encompassing other groups, as sort of these separate things. But they're not. They, they are... They are part and parcel of the same um, sort of mindset or worldview, right? So absolutely. I mean, it's, it's, it's a case of, you know, um, thinking that you're doing something, you know, positive. Uh, you're contributing to the war effort, as it were, um, even when it's clear that you're not, even in your own reports, right? So you read the reports. And what's interesting is that if you track, if you track the numbers killed and captured after the, the conference, there is an obvious, like, exponential rise in the numbers of, of prisoners taken and this kind of stuff. And when I say prisoners taken, these aren't these people that don't remain prisoners for a very long time, right? Um, but you'll find things like an engagement where a unit has, you know, killed 30 people um, with no casualties to themselves and they've captured two pistols, you know? And it, unless there's some kind of really bizarre, you know, weapon sharing system going on, you know, these aren't these aren't combatants. These are just civilians, you know, that you're that you're murdering and then reporting up as as partisans, you know, that you've actually accomplished something. But in reality, you really haven't. Right, right. right. But but what you were saying earlier on about sort of it, it comes down from the top. I mean, you know, we've to Al and I have talked about the Biscari incident in Sicily before. Before the, the invasion of Allied invasion of Sicily, uh, General Patton went round every single one of the uh, frontline units and gave them a pep talk. And part of the pep talker was, when you go to that, I want you to kill lots of Italians, I want you to kill lots of Germans. I don't want you to take any prisoners. And and he didn't mean take prisoners and then shoot them. He just meant, I want you to fight aggressively. But it was absolutely interpreted by certain people as, that is a carte blanche to go and shoot people and line them up against a wall. And and is it any surprise that they did? And 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 they did. And, you know, I mean, my reading of it, is that Patton got off incredibly lightly because that, to me, was incitement to murder. And, and I don't think the Biscari incident where, you know, on the same day, two different incidents, something like, I can't remember how many it was, but it was nearly 80, 80 Italians and a few Germans, were executed who had already been taken prisoner. They were just in a line and they were just mowed down with submachine guns. And I don't think that would have happened if he hadn't given that talk beforehand. Right. I mean, and, and, you know, obviously, if you look at what happens at Dachau during the liberation, uh, you know, where American soldiers line up a bunch of German soldiers who sort of had the misfortune to be left holding the bag at Dachau, execute them, and then Patton sweeps that under the rug. You know, it, it sort of adds a little bit to that, right? Um, you know, and I think, I mean, again, you know, you talk about the language. Language, I think, is really important. One of the orders, one of the criminal orders that comes down from, uh, I think it's from Brauschitz, Again, this, these are the ones that sort of everybody's standing in formation. Gather around, guys. We're going to go to war in the Soviet Union, and let me read some stuff to you. And it says, um, we have to take ruthless and aggressive action against Bolshevik agitators, saboteurs, snipers, and Jews. Right? And so there you have one thing that doesn't belong there because agitating, sniping, and sabotaging are things that you can stop doing. But you can't stop being Jewish, right? So – you already have there, you know, written pretty clearly, though maybe slightly subtly, but, you know, the Jews are right up there as an enemy group. And then you sort of have the, you know, get rid of them. How should we get rid of them, sir, conversations, you know, which, which is understood. And, and again, I think it, when you start to see what their experience has been over time, 
you know, this is, this is learned behavior, you know, in the sense that they learned that this is what needs to happen. And, and, and they, those, again, those that are interested in doing it, do it voluntarily. Some of them do it because they're ordered to, and others, you know, evade in, in other, other ways. And some, some rescue. I mean, there are, and, and again, those are important uh, minorities because they show that this isn't a case that some people look back and say, we talk talking about the, the clean Wehrmacht myth, you know, people look back and say, oh, well, you know, war is hell on the Eastern Front and they were all barbarized and it was, it was dog eat dog and they, we can't, how can we judge people back then? Because, well, people back then were judging themselves and saying that this was wrong and, you know, we shouldn't be doing this. I mean, I'm conscious that I've been, you know, in this conversation, I've been sort of slightly putting kind of cod psychology onto this, but it is just, it's so horrific. It's, you know, I mean, obviously you've looked at those photos, I'm sure Al has as well, of those photos, uh, those sort of grainy photos, and and almost the, the the graininess kind of somehow kind of makes it worse and even more vivid than if it was in kind of sort of sharp high definition. But you know, you've got these cowering women and children who are they're not hysterical, they're not crying their eyes out, they're they're cold, they're humiliated, um, they're shocked, they're in a state of absolute shock by the look of it, and they're just being mowed down into a into a, a pit full of other bodies and the whole thing is just so disgusting it's so shocking it's so appalling that you can't help but kind of want to find reasons for this and just saying that someone's an evil nazi bastard just doesn't cut it There's, it's it's, it's got to go deeper than that it doesn't get you anywhere at all how, how does this happen how does a society descend to this level and of course you know and and i think it's more potent now, because we have an attempted state in the Middle East uh, and extremists who are going around the world actively wanting to kind of get people, subjugate them, rape them, chop their heads off. Uh, and, and it's the same kind of thing, isn't it? It's, it's, it's not a huge leap at all. Well, I mean, I think for me, you know, for me, the most terrifying thing that I've sort of learned out of all of this is that it's, it's, it's the most mundane of reasons that that lead people to do this you know it's it's i don't want them to think i'm a wimp so i'm going to murder women and children because i don't want my buddies to think that i'm not capable of doing this and there's some just some really amazing examples of this there's a a a german army signal unit in serbia that we have an entire array of photographs from um, where they are executing jews as supposed partisans Um, and it goes through the entire process so that because there was a propaganda company guy there documenting it and they've got them with the shovels and they've got them digging and they've got the guys looking around and they've got them being shot. But then afterwards, they have all these soldiers going through these the, the victims' pictures and possessions, you know, just rooting through them, you know. Um, and, and I think that the, the mundaneity of that is the, the most disturbing thing. It, it's not the – for me, it's not the fanatics because most of them aren't fanatics. Um, you know, there was a guy in uh, the police battalion 101 who wrote um, a series of letters home – and uh, one of the things that I think he explained, I think he, anyway, it was, it was somebody in the unit who would only shoot children, like his, his, he would only shoot little children. And it turned out that his motivation, his justification for that was essentially his buddy next to him would shoot the mother. And then for him, it becomes an act of mercy because the mother is no longer there to take care of the kids. And so it's this, you know, it's this amazing ability to sort of resolve this cognitive dissonance, right? Of I can either change my actions or change my behavior or change my behavior or change my thought. And it's much harder to change the behavior. And so they just change what they're thinking. And they're, okay, well, they're twisting it. And, and James hit this at the very beginning with this idea of, of um, the Nazis' view of themselves as the victims. You know, like, we're the good Germans. You know, we're the land of Beethoven and, and Goethe. And it's just so hard for us because we're so caring. To, to murder these people, you know, so really, it's really difficult. That's for our us, burden. You know? but yeah, this, we're, so, but know, we've got to take it so that future generations can live in peace. Exactly, you know, like and 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 that in and of itself is a is a sort of psychological coping mechanism, you know. And so for me, I think it's it's most disturbing, you know, that that these are sort of human reactions to sort of extreme extreme atrocity and and what you've said there also though we talk a lot about how how do soldiers soldiers motivate themselves and we you know we talk about a band of brothers a lot on the podcast and you know they they emphasize you're in that foxhole for your buddies you're there fighting for each other you don't want to let each other down and here you are talking about 
murdering children. He didn't want to let his buddies down. It's the it, how is that? The, it's like the most horrible perversion of that idea that's upheld in Western martial tradition as a noble thing and as a motivating thing and a, pre, a precious, exceptional thing about military service. And here it is being used to do something criminal and disgusting. It's, that's quite extraordinary. But I think that's that's a really astute observation. I mean, that's that's the thing. It, it's sort of the inverse, right? It's it's kind of the inverse of these stereotypically positive values. It's just sort of being turned to the dark side, if you will. You know, I mean, it's it's. I mean, I always tell people the same thing. You know, like when people in the United States are very upset about people seem to be very upset about how people behave with the flag and things like this. You know, and and I always say, look, none of us were fighting for a flag. Like the the days of like fighting to defend the flag are, are you know gone with napoleon in the civil war i guess you know it's not about the flag it's about like you know these people they're like a a a family in some way shape or form and you know i i think one of the things that comes out of all of this it's a lesson i think is that peer pressure is a really powerful terribly powerful sort of thing you know that that somebody could think you know i i just if i don't shoot these 10 people then one of my my buddies is gonna have to do it so i might as well do it so they don't have to is is just a or, or I'm doing it because, you know, I don't want, um, I don't want to look like a wuss, you know, is, is a really sort of, it's a very basic understanding, a very basic phenomenon that we've all experienced in our lives. So at the time, um, because after all, what we have, a, your source here is a trial that happens after the war. That's a trial none of the protagonists ever imagined they'd find themselves in. They were going to win the war after the war. This was all going to be probably unspoken of, wasn't it? Because in the end, everyone knew it was criminal, um, you know, and they know it's criminal at Vanze when they're planning the final solution. And they all know, uh, you know, and the generals after the war, and obviously they've lost, say, oh, yeah, when, when Hitler gave us, gave us that speech, we all thought it was rather um, iffy. Although none of them obviously said so at the time and all this sort of thing. What are people, you know, what are they expecting as a, are they expecting a medal when the, you know, when they've defeated the Soviet Union for their excellent work against partisans. This the, because after all, when it's happening in its present moment, it isn't happening as a as a to be digested by history entity, is it? So, uh, I mean, I think what's interesting, there's a couple of things that 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 sparks me to think about. You know, one of them is so the guy at um, at Krucha, so the place with the three companies, uh, the guy who essentially is responsible for the operation is the first sergeant. The company commander sits in his office the whole time and never leaves because he doesn't really want to be present. And the first sergeant is the one that sets it all up, organizes all the squads, and um, and he chooses to put to be in charge of the shooting squad. So, and and as it turns out, when you listen to all of his soldiers talking about him after the war, they're basically like all he ever wanted to be in life was a first sergeant. You know, like this is his dream of like promotion. And so he sees, you know, he's one of these, again, it's, it's, I like what Al said earlier, it's, it's sort of this inversion, right? So, you know, we want that NCO who is a hard charger, who takes the initiative, you know, in the absence of, of strong command and, and does what he should do. But here you have one doing the other thing. You know, the commander is wishy-washy, I don't really want to do this. And the first sergeant says, I'll take care of it, sir, and goes out. But the, the thing he's taking care of is, is murdering people. Um, you know, and, and again, why is he doing it? Well, you know, he's, he thinks there's advancement in that for him. And what's interesting, you know, if we think about the, at the, the, the post-war piece, which is, you know, another piece to think about, you know, that these guys going home and, and living with this. Um, and I'll just mention, you know, because I know we're getting probably towards the end, but there's a, the way that this whole case comes about, the Krucha case, is, is to my mind both really humorous and, and, and fascinating. And since, you know, we're supposed to be somewhat humorous. We can't have, you know, atrocity, all atrocity all the time for the entire podcast. So, um, you know, the way this starts essentially is there's a guy and the guy was a former, was a veteran of this unit at the Krucha shooting. And he and his wife were having problems. And this is in Germany in the 1950s. And they basically, they basically split up, but they don't have enough money to really move out. So she moves into the apartment above his apartment. Um, and they split the kids. They have two kids, and one goes with him, and one goes upstairs with mom. And mom is 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 really upset because the the father doesn't or the dad the father is really upset because the mother takes all of the good clothes for her child and leaves him with the crappy clothes. And so the the guy then uh, complains to the mayor, 
And the mayor and the police chief of this little village show up at the guy's apartment complex to go inspect the, the, the conditions that the children are living in. And um, the mother goes off on them. And, and the, 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 from what I can tell from the, the records, you know, that basically the, these three men like are retreating from this angry housewife. And she's, she's yelling out the window, you know, shut up, you Jew murdering bastard to her husband. And her husband says, you know, something like, you know, shut up, you filthy, you know, B-I-T-C-H. And but the, the most funny about the entire – the most humorous part about the entire thing is after this happens, the guy goes to the police and reports his wife for defamation for accusing him of being a Jew-murdering bastard because it turns out that he – according to him, he actually didn't shoot any Jews. But he was in this unit that shot Jews and so he has to explain to the police – well, okay, I was in the line to shoot them, but then me and this other guy refused to do it. And then everything unravels after that and you have this whole court case come out. You know, so so it's really interesting, you know, all of this how it stays beneath the surface, but it's just beneath the surface after the war. Like everybody knows this stuff has gone on. You know, they it's all there. It's just it only pops up at certain times, you know, and And, and they then, do know it's gone on because because people are sending back photo films and cine footage and all the rest of it and people are developing it and back in you know wherever wherever they might be Wolfsburg Berlin whatever and they're seeing it and, and people talk and, and and it's known about and then then you've got the infamous sports ballot speech by Goebbels in February 1943 where he goes are you ready for total war because you know we're in the shit and we've committed all this to us and you all know it and I know it and we all know it and we're all in it together and it's not quite as implicit as that but but it's almost as implicit as that and and they all know it they all know it you know so this whole idea that you know i mean obviously some people didn't know what was going on but but as a nation they're all kind of bound up in it aren't they which is where all this kind of sort of collective guilt has come from absolutely i mean you have 17 million germans that served at some point in the wehrmacht you know and and ironically they're coming home on leave from the eastern front which is very bizarre to me but you know they're coming home they're sending letters i mean like they, there is no way this is an empirically uh a, a hermetically sealed sort of border and no one right. knows what's going on right. in Eastern, in Eastern Front. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's, it's, it's common knowledge. Oh wow. gosh. Well, thank you so much. Thank you so much, Whiteman. I mean, uh, as ever, we've, we've, we've done this thing of, we could talk about this forever. It's uh, so much food for thought. Um, because it's, let's never, return to it, that. We should definitely come back to yeah, this. We, this yeah, is, we should this definitely is, come back to this. It's so point, fascinating. Yeah. And, 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 you know, we spend so much time sort of talking about tanks and tigers versus Shermans and and Banner Brothers and Normandy and all the rest of it. But but you know, every time I, I'm sort of I get close to kind of the real horrors. You know, whether it's a visit to Auschwitz or it's a discussion about kind of sort of appalling massacres in Belarus. You know, it does remind you of just how utterly ghastly and horrific. Really well, I mean, this is the thing, you know, th- th- I would I would just close with, you know, this is the thing that I always hit because, you know, I'm I'm recovering from this. And I think everyone who's in the military and probably everyone who went to West Point at the time that I did, you know, there, there's a Wehrmacht penis envy in the U.S. Army of, you know, the, the, the panzers and like, oh, I mean, like I had a, I had a professor who used to refer to his his uh, when he was an army unit commander of my panzers, you know, and and there's this sort of. Um, you know, the Verabu phenomenon, the people that are just obsessed with all things German army, you know, and I always feel like, well, you, you can't sort of take that in a vacuum. You know, you got to realize that that this is all in the service of essentially a, a genocidal white supremacist state, you know, at, in the end, right? And so it's always sort of like that little caveat at the end of, oh, by the way, you know, Rommel had an Einsatzgruppen that was slated to accompany him had he been more successful in North okay. Africa, you well, know, and this kind of stuff. Y- y- this is something that Al and I have talked about uh, um, privately on our own a lot, is the kind of fetishization of the Wehrmacht and indeed the Waffen-SS. You know, I mean, I, I just find it so weird that anyone would ever want to dress up as a member of the Waffen-SS. It's quite weird wanting to be in the Wehrmacht, but it's really weird wanting to be in the Waffen-SS. <laughs> yeah. but, but, but I think this is something that we should talk about because there is a lot yeah. of it out there and I think we should confront it head on. Um, and, and I think it would be great for you to come back on and talk about that. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, the clean Wehrmacht and, and sort of the uh, the obsession with all things German army uh, would be a fantastic um, Let's conversation do it. to have. Let's do we'll that so, sooner we'll, rather than later. We'll, we'll do it next yeah. time. Um, 
ladies and gents, uh, dear listeners, uh, thanks once again for joining us. Uh, Waitman, thank you so much. I'll need to berate more people about self-propelled guns and tanks because it's netting us. <laughs> It's netting us extraordinary contributors. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. Exactly. To- but thank you, Wayman. That's, that's, that's given a lot of food for thought. That's yeah. for sure. Thanks, Sam. Cheerio. Cheerio.